who did Batgirl? It wasn't James Gunn. No, it wasn't James Gunn, but uh, the people that directed the last Bad Boys film, and it's, from my understanding, the only Bad Boys film that had good reviews across the board. You already are making me not want to see this Batgirl film. And I'm, <laughs> look, look, I have Batgirl right here next to me, okay? Within <laughs> arm's reach. Beyond any terror ever known, the black sleep, it wakes the dead. Five of the screen's greatest horror thrill stars, Basil Rathbone, Akim Tamirov, Lon Chaney, John Carradine, Bella Lugosi, and these beautiful women in their power. <laughs> Pass through a madman's hellfire. Enter an ancient abbey's secret passage into the most terrifying tortured dungeon from the medieval past. Shocking victims of a famous brain specialist gone berserk. Plunging you into a reign of terror. That's cerebral fluid. But that means this man is alive. He is alive. This is criminal. Monstrous. Let go! Why not use her? Put her on the black sleep. Take her up to surgery at once. A horror beyond belief. Feeding on beauty. <laughs> Lusting to claw the world apart. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. Today on the podcast, I have an old friend of mine, John Zanardelli, who I met when we were both working in independent film. He's an old friend, but also a big movie fan. So without further ado, welcome, John. Thanks for having me. It's good to be aboard. <laughs> what I always ask when people come on the show is... What have you been streaming lately or what have you been watching <laughs> in the theaters or reading or playing in the case of video games? Because we've had a lot of people, <laughs> that's their media of choice. What media have you been consuming lately? I actually just got back from watching Evil Dead Rise in the theater. I'm kind of proud of myself. I got to see something opening weekend. <laughs> okay. So uh, I got to ask because yeah. I've worked on two of Sam Raimi's films and I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. And I saw Evil Dead, the original, in second run, but on the big screen. Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, in second run, but on the big screen. And Army of Darkness, in first run, on the big screen. In fact, I've watched them all back to back to back on the big screen <laughs> at a festival once. So, I'm a Raimi fan. The reboot... I was disappointed in because okay. here's my take on the evil dead franchise. The first film, they were still getting the formula down. I thought it was a little too typical horror movie. The second one dead by dawn. I thought the addition of a little more slapstick humor, the hybrid 
of horror slash comedy was very unique to Evil Dead. And I thought that was great. Army of Darkness, I felt they went a little too far in that direction. It was more slapstick fantasy than horror, and the horror elements were given short shift. So the perfect sweet spot for me is Evil Dead 2, also Mm -hmm. known as Dead by Dawn. When I saw the new movie, first of all, without Ash, you know, it's already an uphill climb. Except at the end. Well, at the okay, very end of the very, credits. Very brief. There's a very, very brief insert. I think it was post-credits. Um, yeah, yeah, post-credit. But uh, the overall tone was just wrong. It, to me, was like a haunting exorcist type thing, and it was not Evil Dead. And part of that, it's also lacked Raimi's signature, like shaky cam stuff and all that, that crazy camera work, you know? And also a charismatic person like i don't care about some random teenagers that go to a cabin i never do it's always about the monsters right mm-hmm. and uh so i don't know what was your take without spoilers because okay. we don't want spoilers on the show oh yeah absolutely not um well i will say this if you didn't like the tone of the reboot you may not be too much of a fan of this one I think it was honestly just me and maybe one other person in the theater. And I saw it, I saw it was like the second or third week it was released and some friends are raving about it. I was like, all right, fine. I'll check it out. I checked it out. I thought that like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's also trying to find its, uh, its genre style, its footing. Like it's, it's trying to be in the spirit of essentially the whole trilogy, like, and, and getting into the reboot, the 2013 one, when it gets to the end and the person we thought was going to be the, the next Ash or whatever turns out not to be. And then everything in there just starts going so far over the top where it just starts. The second it starts raining blood, I started laughing hysterically because I was like, OK, here's the over the top. They saved the first half is the first Evil Dead the second half is the second evil dead and that's where the tones kind of blended for me so i I thought it was a nice compliment and that's kind of what i got out of this one too there are some moments there's as far as like the shaky cam like they do find a way to actually make a good joke with the handheld tracking shot like they yeah they do that like you, you see it go from land to water and this is the opening minute of the film so it's like it's not a big spoiler but they find a way to actually they tie it in and it's well done from there. It gets into that tone of yeah, it's dark. It's grittier. It's relentless. But instead of being a bunch of teenagers, what worked really well for me was the fact that it was a family. It's a single mother, three kids. Conde- like it's an, it's a building that's about to be condemned in about a month or whatever. And the production design is gorgeous. Like I thought, I thought the production design of the Hellraiser reboot last year was actually incredible. And like this, this kind of brought like that. I want to say like Del Toro art deco style into yeah, it. And yeah. I, I, I really dig like that angular look and like the, the rooms, the, the walls and everything was so well done. Um, yeah. I had fun. There's one or two funny moments, but it doesn't like just get too campy with it. There's campy moments, but it definitely feels very relentless in the horror. I'm going to wait for streaming on this one. Um, yeah. But what I liked about Evil Dead 2 is not just the over-the-top slapstick, you know, mm-hmm. with Ash getting, like, beat up all, all the time, you know, but it's also, like, little touches, like 
the evil gets into his hand and he he likes chainsaws it off right and like mm-hmm. then this starts a whole fight between him and the hand you know and the hand flips him off you know things like that are funny but then he eventually traps it under a coffee can and throws some some big books on it and like the top yeah. book is like a farewell to arms you know it's like little things like that that are like yeah. the rainy touches that i love you know there's one or two little brief things in there and i think like people like you and me would be the only ones that would catch it. The first time we see this kid in his recording booth, let's just say there's a three stooges poster in the background that kids his age of this generation wouldn't have. And people like you and me would be the only one that would get the reference of the name that's blocked out. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we're getting dangerously close we're to spoiler ter- spoilers territory. So let, let's move on to our topic for today, which is horror. Maybe I don't know. We'll have to discuss whether it qualifies as a yeah, horror film or yeah. not. The Black Sleep, which was also released under the title Doctor Cadman's Secret from 1956. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I chose this film is we have a subtle tradition on the show, which we left unspoken. I don't know if anyone's picked up on it yet. Every so often, we throw in a film set in the past, and that past is often the year 150 years earlier than what we're talking in the podcast. This one's actually 151 years now, but uh, it's it's roughly 150 years ago is when this was set. We're recording this in 2023, and it was set in the year 1872. So I want to give a little background to the year 1872 little memory jog to what life was like at that time if you happened to be alive 150 years ago. (laughs) February 27th of 1872, Charlotte Ray becomes the first Black female lawyer to graduate from Harvard University. Keep in mind, this is still very close after the Civil War. This is during Reconstruction. March 11th, work begins at Seven Sisters Colliery in South Wales, which is one of the uh, richest coal mines in Britain. April 21st, the Third Carlist War begins in Spain. In May of uh, 1872, the Rangers FC of Glasgow plays their first game on Glasgow Green. It's a scoreless draw against Calendar. (laughs) In uh, May 10th, Victoria Woodhull, the first woman nominated for president of the United States, is disqualified for being a year too young. June 15th, Thomas Hardy anonymously publishes the novel Under the Greenwood Tree in England. July 15th, Ho Chi Mail News, later Ho Chi Daily News, a Japanese language daily newspaper, is first published in Tokyo. August 22nd, the Australian Overland Telegraph Line is completed, which is the first link between Australia and the rest of the world, communications link. September 1st, a group of Maya under Marcos Cannell attacked the British garrison at Orange Walk Town in British Honduras. September 17th, Shiseido, I don't know how to pronounce this, Shisido, you see it at the mall all the time. The pharmacy shop 
which is now a global cosmetics brand, was founded in Ginza, Tokyo, Japan. October 1st, the first case is reported in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, of the great epizootic of 1872, which is equine influenza or horse flu. And it will substantially disrupt life in North America by mid-December, causing a pandemic. <laughs> we don't have any familiarity with yeah. that now, do we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a few years ago, if you had mentioned a pandemic, people would have no frame of reference for what that meant, you know? Right. Yeah. November 16th, the first ever Metropolitan Police strike occurs in London. And December 21st, the Challenger expedition sails from Portsmouth on a four-year scientific expedition that lays the foundation for the science of oceanography. Also in science news, in 1872, Charles Darwin published his third major book on evolutionary theory. It was called The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. And it was originally supposed to be a chapter in his previous book, The Descent of Man. But as he started writing, it just grew in length and eventually was published separately. The book is considered a major advancement in brain science since it dealt with the biological aspects of emotional life. So that's where brain science was at the time. Good. It's good you brought that up because I was actually trying to find that out after as I was watching this movie. Okay. This opens with a doctor, Dr. Ramsey, and he is in prison, set to be hanged for the murder of a man named Curry. He claims he's innocent and he's visited by a Dr. Cadman who says he's going to take care of it. Cadman puts a drug in his drink, a drug that was we saw in the opening title cards was called Nind and Hedra. The uh, actor that plays this doctor who's supposed to be hanged is Herbert Rudley, but the actor that plays Dr. Cadman is Basil Rathbone, who everybody should know from Sherlock Holmes fame. <laughs> the greatest Sherlock Holmes, in my opinion, of all the actors that have played Sherlock Holmes, he's the number one with maybe tied with Jeremy Brett. Those two, one of the two. Um, <laughs> so he drugs his drink and it puts him into this fake death, the black sleep. Then a grave robber is hired to like dig him up and bring the coffin back to Cadman's lab secret lair mansion, whatever it is. yeah mansion whatever it is and that sort of kicks us off when we first see this guy who's convicted of murder he seems very convinced that he's just absolutely innocent and there wasn't a part of me that felt oh there might be something this guy's hiding or because like sometimes when you watch a film you get a sense that there's like something either in a, in a tone or in his story that something seems off this one seems like when he's telling the story it's like there's no way I could have done anything to this guy. I don't even know this guy. Oh, um, and that's the thing I looked up is they say the man weighed 20 stone. <laughs> I had to yeah, look up how much is that. <laughs> so apparently one stone equals 14 pounds and 20 stone would make the guy 280 pounds. 280 pounds. So, yes. So this guy who's saying, oh, there's no way I could have lifted him. Yeah, there's no way you could lift a near 300 pound man, like especially with the stature this guy had in jail. So... So yeah, yeah I, I completely, 
and and I like that little bit of innocence about him. And I was like, oh, cool, this guy's gonna get him out of this circumstance. But there's something that does seem a little off about it. it, it it's a good setup. It's a good setup to the story. It, I mean, even if it seems familiar, it seemed very, you know, for being a B flick, it was very well executed. Yep. 280 pounds is up there. Pretty, um, yeah. It's not inconceivable, though. Like, it's not no. a ridiculous amount. It's or, not, but this this guy was clearly not a, uh, like, Jack LaLanne of the time. <laughs> so, Tor Johnson, who we'll talk about here soon, he weighed 440 pounds. Oh, so, so Tor went on a diet for this film. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> While he's there, strange things start to happen. Specifically, some residents of this castle are awful strange. And one of them is Mungo. Mm-hmm. Mungo, played by Lon Chaney Jr., is some sort of slightly hunchback character that seems to be mentally not quite with it. Right. Let's like put it the, that way. Like, like a deranged Quasimodo, not like the sympathetic Quasimodo. So it's almost like it, it seemed like, like a parody of a previous family role, almost. Right. It was, it, was, it was either him or his dad that played the original hunchback, right? Yeah, it was it was it was Lon Chaney Jr. Normally, automatically my mind goes to the Wolfman when I think of him. Right? Yeah, that, that's where that's where my mind goes too. But yeah, he was also Quasimodo. I think he's channeling a little bit of that character for this. Mm-hmm. Another one of the horror greats is in this Bella Lugosi, mm-hmm. who plays Casimir. Yeah. There are a number mm-hmm. of sort of freakish characters that occupy this castle. Now we learn that the Dr. Cadman's wife is comatose mm-hmm. and has a brain tumor. And so he is doing experiments in brain surgery to try to map the brain so that he can eventually save her life. Basil Rathbone's character. You, like you start seeing the experiments and everything that he does like he goes through the procedure this man that he well basically they they faked his death and everything like he's there to like kind of take notes and just kind of track everything that he's done with the experiments and at first he's intrigued and he thinks it's a big advancement in science but then he begins raising questions when he figures out oh this person's not dead this person that you're experimenting on is alive and he starts to begin to question the morality of this entire thing. It gets fairly graphic for a 50s film, like seeing an open brain surgery during this procedure. And yeah. you start to realize that it's had effects on everybody that this procedure's been done on. What I liked about it was once we started seeing how deep the effects went and how many people he's done this to it's what the nature of good science fiction is, is what if, like what if there was a cure for this, but to do so would lead to some true, like the people that had a life would be essentially ruined from the mind out. Like we find out Mungo, I think was like this assistant's father, wasn't it? Yeah. Or yeah. And then I don't know if like subconsciously he recognizes her, but there's moments you find out that, if she looks at him a certain way, that's what sets him off. 
that was like the monster you were alluding to in the beginning there. Like that's the first interaction he has with anybody in the estate outside of Basil and the person who made his corpse up and everything. It's this woman screaming and running out of a hallway being chased by Lon Chaney. And then you come to find out that's her dad. And what I liked about this is, again, as we were talking about horror early on, like we're used to like seeing something that is relentless from beginning to end. But with this one, is it a horror? Is this science fiction? It does like this good setup for the story, like a very dark gothic story, the way that like Frankenstein was with like, I saw yeah. a lot of parallels with Frankenstein, especially when they mentioned galvanism and they started talking about uh, what galvanism was, you know, that got a lot of attention through Frankenstein actually, because it's about sending electricity through nerve endings to try to reanimate dead tissue. Yep. That's kind of what I liked about this is as they go down there, where you see all the other experiments and just seeing the degree of just what they did to these patients. Like it was kind of, it was pretty terrifying. I was, I was not expecting that for a 1956 film. So it reminded me of a couple of other films. It reminded me of freaks, Todd Browning's freaks, mm-hmm. which is another one where it's like, is this truly horror? And if we consider freaks to be a horror film, then I think we need to consider this to be a horror film. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's personally, I wasn't terrified of freaks because it's people with deformities and abnormalities that were given a chance to be in a film. And I don't think there's anything to be afraid of with that. I mean, if anything, the scariest people there were the ones that were trying to murder other people, (laughs) the fully normal people. (laughs) And by the way, freaks starred Lon Chaney Sr. So Lon Chaney's father was in freaks. The other film it reminded me of is a little more obscure film that came out only a few years before this in 1953. It was called The Maze. And I saw The Maze at a uh, old theater called The Emery, which is mm-hmm. now gone, long gone. But it was in 3D and it was projected in 3D. It was fantastic. The film's just okay, but it's another one that takes place in an old castle and the residents of the castle are kind of creepy, but it's not not necessarily outright horror until like at the end, the sci-fi horror type elements come in right at the very end. But, um, right. but most of it is just atmosphere, which I think, uh, you know, if you're done right, you could consider that horror. So I'm going to consider yeah. the maze horror. I'm going to consider freaks horror. And I'm going to consider the black sleep to be a horror film. Yeah, and honestly, I'll going a little bit more modern. I'll even say something like uh, Dark City. Yeah, if you want to, if you want to think about it, because there's it's more a more modern tone of the same story about darker experiments, but at the same time has a lot of atmospheric gothic horror elements in there. So, yeah. as far as the science goes, that's totally believable to me. I could believe that if you were able to tell that someone had a brain tumor back Mm -hmm. then i don't know how they were able to determine that but if you were able to determine that then the idea of okay i want to cut this out of her and save her life but i don't want to do it without knowing where i'm cutting so i have to do experience on cutting other people Uh, you know i can't do experience on animals because that's not going to translate to humans i need to cut up other people's brains to find out where is safe and how to do this so 
I could totally believe that if you were amoral enough to do that. And certainly (laughs) I'm sure there are people who are, you know, that part of it, the motivations, totally believable. Uh, Let me give some shout outs to what I think were some of the best things about this movie, because I'm going to get into the bad things in a minute, but (laughs) let's start with the good. Okay. One is that there are two actors that I think really steal the show in this. One is Basil Rathbone as Dr. Mm-hmm. Cadman. And yes. the other the other is um, Odo the Gypsy. Mm-hmm. Akim Tamaroff mm-hmm. played Odo the Gypsy. Those two really steal the show. The two most effective scenes in there in the film for me, for Basil Rathbone, the scene after his assistant discovers all the horrors in the basement. And then before the guy's about to walk out, he says, well, let me show you one more thing. He takes him upstairs to see his wife. That entire scene I thought was so incredibly effective. And Basil Rathbone, just like the way that he maneuvered between sympathetic and unhinged and just, there's so much complexity he gave to that role that you weren't sure whether you wanted to feel sorry for him or if you should feel terrified for him. It was just such a really good scene. I, I wanted to, to go into that one with you as well. Hopefully I'm not saying too much. And the other scene with Odo, with uh, the lady in his parlor. Yeah. had like, wow, the end of his scene with her and that, that was really effective. <laughs> Another thing that I really liked about it is that it dealt with people that were sort of on the margins of society. So Mm -hmm. surgery, there was almost practically no such thing, you know, so surgeons had to rely on people, grave robbers to get bodies to practice on and stuff like that. The, The surgeon, Dr. Cadman, he lives in Limehouse, which is like that seedy area of London, the same place Jack the Ripper was known to strike. You know, there's a lot of prostitution. (laughs) Prostitutes, one way they could get money that prostitutes could make money other than through prostitution was posing for artists because artists couldn't get a proper lady to, you know, pose nude either. So there's (laughs) that situation or even pose at all. Artists in general, but in particular, tattoo artists, like so so Odo, one of his like things, Odo, yeah. yeah, he's a tattoo artist. Um, mm-hmm. so that's another thing that's like so, and clearly he's using these bodies to practice tattooing on because we see the tattoos on the on the bodies. So yeah. there's a lot of a lot of things going on with that kind of thing. And the one other thing I want to say before I forget about it is that the score was great. It was um less Baxter fans of exotica and lounge music like tiki culture would be familiar with Les Baxter. He did the score for this and it's really great. So those are the elements that I really liked about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Let's break down your favorite scenes. The lady that thinks that she saw Curry at a bar or whatever, and she's about ready to like tell the inspectors and just ruin the whole plan, which you come to find out just how much Basil Rathbone's character manipulated everything, even from the beginning. Even the people tied to his experiments still found a way to be part of the experiments. When you discover exactly who Curry was 
and how they all tied together. And you're like, he put all of this together. Like that was, that was such a good moment. But then yeah. to see that this woman who was about to blow the whistle on everything, Odo puts her in the sleep just so that like when the police come by, it's like, oh, sure, look around. You won't see anything. He's got her hidden in like a secret compartment behind his wall. The other thing to mention is that she's supposed to be waking up from it. Like there's something you have to give them to wake him up from it. And the way that he just looks at her and he does like this, this monologue and it's not like an out of nowhere monologue. It's a monologue that felt really natural when he just breaks down what he does next. And he just squirts the, the syringe against the wall. It's, it's as graphic as like any throat slit or just like blood drenched across the wall. Like it's just, just, it's not like knowing that it's not violent, but knowing what he's doing is essentially sensing her to death like that. I was like, that's pretty brutal for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was definitely, um, I, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it, 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 it was an intense scene. Okay. And the other scene you mentioned. When he takes his assistant to see his wife, you feel like the sense of longing he has for her and yep. just, like you can tell that he doesn't want to do these things. He doesn't want to hurt anyone. But then well, like, but, I, but, but, but yeah, then, but then he's like, but I will for her. It's like, and then that's when the, and the, the switch in that scene happens. I'm like, that, that just kind of took me off guard. Cause like in the middle, I'm starting to feel sympathy for him. And then they just turn the, like, and he just turns that switch around to like to not feel so safe with them. You're like, okay, so I, I don't feel very safe around his intentions or whatever. And it's like, I guess I feel bad for his wife more than him. <laughs> well, the interesting thing is he has dual motivations. One is to save his wife. Right. But he also in order to save his life, he has to learn about the brain and that mm -hmm. alone becomes a end in itself. And he has a great ends justifies the means quote, where he says at some point in the interest of science, anything is justified, anything, a direct quote. So <laughs> not just about saving his wife, but the science itself in the interest of science, anything's justified. So I don't know why, when, everybody learned about Joseph Mengele's experiments, but it was around this time, right? So like so there having, probably was definitely a lot of parallels about that. <laughs> having a character say, you know, in the name of science, anything is justified. Mm -hmm. That's like a pretty potent thing to be saying right at that moment in time. I don't know if it's the writer side of me or just the fact that I've watched Young Frankenstein so many times, but I had a feeling it was going to end with the inspector coming in. Like when I found out about Curry still being in the basement, the first thing that went off in my mind was the inspector is going to see Curry in some way. And this guy, because essentially his character is either the only way out for him would be death in the situation he's in. Cause like, he can't go anywhere. He can't leave this guy's estate. He's stuck being Basil Rathbone's assistant until his experiments are done or he decides he's got no more use for him. And if he's going to escape in any way, there's going to have to be something that proves his innocence. And the only way to do that is if someone sees Curry alive and the only source of law enforcement we see is the inspector that goes to Odo's house. Right. Once I knew what it was trying to do, I felt I knew where it was going to go by the end. Right. 
is a bit predictable. Okay. Yeah. Let me break down some of my qualms because sometimes I have nitpicks and sometimes I have major things. So let me start with (laughs) some of the nitpicks and then, well, I'll start with a nitpick and then I'll get into some more major things. The title. So this was also released as Cadman's Secret and that would make more sense. The Black Sleep is a cooler sounding title. Although Mm -hmm. I got to admit, it sets you up for thinking that the Black Sleep is actually a major thing when it's actually just a MacGuffin. It's to get him into the story. You know, it's not that important to the story. It's just, we got to get this doctor here, you know, and force him to do it's the It's the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, it is the stuff that dreams are made of. So (laughs) literally, literally. So the big thing here, and I think this is a lack of directing skill. And it might be writing too, but really directing because at the writing stage, you don't know who's going to be cast. You don't know any of that stuff. Usually Mm -hmm. this being a studio film, maybe they did, but someone like Todd Browning would have done really well with this material. I think it has all the elements, but there's sometimes when you have all the ingredients that go into a cake and you put them together, it's not going to make a cake. You just, everything about the way that the cake is made has to be done exactly right and it has to rise in the oven. And it could be that this just didn't properly rise or flopped or whatever. That's the best analogy I can give because it has everything. It has the cool sets. It's got the good music. And it has Basil Rathbone, Lon Chaney, mm-hmm. John mm-hmm. Carradine, Bella mm-hmm. Lugosi, and Tor Johnson. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's got this amazing cast and it wastes them because they only appear in it very briefly. And the two that appear most frequently, which is Lon Chaney and Bella Lugosi, are mute. Are mute, yep. <laughs> so they they don't even have any lines. That was one thing I did look up, and apparently Lugosi was upset that he wasn't given lines. He wanted to have lines written in for him, but they elected against it. And apparently Chaney said he was fine not having lines. But no, you're right. Like, in hindsight, knowing this is Lugosi's last film, like, if you don't count plan nine, of course, um, because (laughs) let's talk about plan nine, because this has Tor Tor Johnson in it. And this has Mm -hmm. Bella Lugosi in it, both of whom are in plan nine from outer space. Yep. Now, sad as it is to say, Ed Wood may have used these two actors better. (laughs) Or use them worse in a way that makes them use better. (laughs) But here's, what I heard, and I don't know if this is true, but I read this somewhere. Lugosi did want lines and they filmed yeah. them. They filmed oh. them, but they ended up cutting them. They ended up on the cutting room floor. Hmm. Those cuttings were in Plan 9. Plan really? 9 has footage that was originally shot for the Black Sleep with Lugosi. Oh. Interesting. Now, it's been a long time since I've seen Plan 9. I got to go back and watch it. Well, next um, time you watch it, see I if... am definitely going to be looking to see if any of that footage matches this time. Yeah. I, I can tell between the production values of this movie and the bedsheet backgrounds for their other scenes. Yeah. <laughs> this was originally on a double bill with The Creeping Unknown, which is also known as Quarter Mass Experiment, which is a great film. Maybe we'll talk about that in a future show. But that's my biggest complaint is that if you were just to read or see the poster, you'd think this is amazing. You know, it, you have all bit, the names there to put on the poster. Exactly. Yeah. It's a little bit like Universal's like, 
House of Frankenstein or something where they like, they're like, all right, we're going to go all in and get all the main horror actors in one all-star extravaganza. Mm-hmm. But um, this just kind of falls flat. It has all the ingredients. It just doesn't bake right. Yeah. And that is definitely something I felt in this film too. Like I'm glad I saw it knowing its place in history. Like you said, knowing that there's this many iconic horror actors in it. But yeah, there were times like even for an hour and 20 minutes, I felt it dragging a lot. And that's just, I mean, for an hour and 20 minute film to drag at times, it's like, what, what are they not? Like, like you said, the sets are there. The atmosphere is there. The concept is there. The actors are there. And in many ways, the script is even there. But yeah, it's just like something in the director has to understand how to take these ingredients. And instead of making scrambled eggs and bread, you want to make a cake. Yeah. That, that's, the, that's what a good director does is they know how to take those ingredients and make them into something else. That said, I want to say that this might have been better on the big screen. Might Probably, have yeah. Like, I think if I had been sitting in a theater watching this and like the scenery was huge on the screen and everything, like... I think I might have been able to cut it a little more slack. So I think it probably suffers from home video. And which is one of the reasons this has been a very hard to find thing on home video for many, many years. It was out of print and it's kind of a forgotten film. Mm. It it occupies this era, like the universal monster movies of the forties. That's over. That era is kind of at an end. Yeah. And the hammer horror films of the fifties and sixties, we mentioned this came uh, on a double bill with the quarter mass experiment that came out in 62. That was sort of the beginning of that was a hammer film. I'm pretty sure that was the beginning of hammers uh, coming out and being the new breed of horror film, the Mm -hmm. Blumhouse of its era. And right. uh, right. (laughs) That's kind of my take on things. I think that, you know, you don't want to give Tor Johnson a bunch of lines, but Bella Lugosi at least give and Bella Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. deserve some lines. And, and in yeah. fact, um, when he does appear, John Carradine as like this religious mm-hmm. fanatic, which that was pretty, pretty wild, <laughs> like left field crap. I kind of dug that. It's like, okay, <laughs> yeah. the guy is like got some brain damage, but it, for him, it manifests itself in this like religious zealotry <laughs> thing, you know? And uh, yeah. th- that was kind of cool. That he is like clearly is like i'm gonna have two minutes of screen time so i'm gonna like go gonna over the every top second. With this. <laughs> and, yep and and the movie needed more of that the movie needed to trust its actors to do that which yeah, yeah. one other thing i just little anecdote i found funny uh while i'm watching this movie and and again because watching it on pluto they had commercial breaks the one thing that kept cracking me up is i'm watching this story about the morality of science and experimenting on people. And every time it cut to a commercial, it went straight to like St. Jude hospital or Galen school of nursing. (laughs) I'm like, wow, know what you're putting your advertising on. We should let the audience know we tried like hell to find versions. Nobody's streaming this. It's not an in-demand film, so none of the streaming services have it. I looked for it. Home video releases are really rare, so finding it in a library is practically impossible. So we had to watch 
free uh streaming what do you call it ad supported uh what, yeah what it's, like, it, it's um, like free streaming ads if they're familiar with pluto tv or tubi they'll know what it is it's like sure you'll get your movie it's free all you do is you put your email address in or just put like a subsection email address you created just for this but the downside is is it's like you're watching cable again where you're got commercial breaks and 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 unlike television it's like they don't care when they're interjecting their commercials it's just like okay it's been about 15 20 minutes put something in doesn't matter if yeah it's it like, can be in the middle of someone's end, line be, <laughs> yes yes and it's infuriating fast is what it's what, what it's called in the industry free ad supported streaming television it's the fastest okay. it's the pardon the pun fastest growing streaming area right now so everybody's going all in and we're now seeing like stalwarts like god rest hbo max uh um, i think our new Warner hbo Brothers. is gonna have like an ad tier and like you know they're all doing oh, it now God. they're all i think disney's gonna have an ad tiered one if they don't already and it's, you know, it's just I, like yeah i said it when streaming like when netflix first became a thing and then Every like all of a sudden we started hearing, oh well, we're gonna get this streaming and this streaming. I was like, and everyone's talk like like, and again, ten years ago when everyone's talked about, oh, cutting the cable, saving money, blah blah blah. I'm like, give it time, because you guys are creating your new monster right now. It's like it's it's they're gonna have to like they're thinking they're they're creating something new, but they're just reinventing the wheel of cable. We're we're going back to getting cable eventually. I don't mind it as long as we still get. First of all, they need to get more stuff into streaming. Like these libraries need to grow. When yeah. Netflix first started, it was many, many was thousands great. of movies more than it has yeah. now. But even yeah. Disney and HBO and stuff like that, they need to increase their archives. It needs to be like when we could go to the video store or we could go to the library, still can, mm -hmm. and yep. get all this back catalog but because streaming costs space, storage space and bandwidth, they keep a set amount and rotate them in and out. And that means yep. at any given time, you might not be able to see a certain film. And only, only right. something like 10% of all films are even available to stream, you know? And so mm -hmm. it's like, my worry is that what's going to happen, and I know this is going to happen with our, we, so we're speculating about the new HBO, which is going to happen any day now. It's going to go from HBO Max to Max, Max. and they're folding yeah. in their supposedly profitable or needs to be more profitable reality TV, like Discovery Plus or whatever into it. And so my fear is, this is my fear. They say it's not going to change anything for HBO subscribers, but I think it is. They're going to need to displace stuff in order to add the entire catalog of, like, it's not just going to grow by the size of Discovery Plus. They're going to take a little from column A, a little from column B. Mm -hmm. Column A, mm -hmm. for me, happens to be cinema. That's what HBO is known yeah. for. It's documentaries, mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's movies, it's home box office. That's what it is. And they're going to displace a certain amount of movies which already isn't a big enough catalog in my opinion and they're going to displace it with reality tv this is the danger of mergers like mergers to give it rick and morty terms it cronenberg's companies that's what it does is like but you take these other entities what they are and when you think that you're just blending them all together the only people that profit are the board
All right. We have gone so far off topic that I think it's time to wrap this up. If you like the show, please (laughs) like, subscribe, uh, you know, give us a five star rating and good review on whatever platform it is that you use to download this. If you want to talk to us, you can email us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is John. Signing off. Want to say goodnight? Goodnight.